Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. If you're here for the first time, thanks so much. I know sometimes it's hard to step through. If you're joining us online, thank you also for doing that. Well, I wasn't here last week, and if you weren't, Nate Gonsal, our student pastor, did a great job. Uh, he spoke on Psalm 86. I found myself even referencing this week, how do we deal with discontent? Uh, I, if you didn't see it, I'd really encourage you to check that out. Of course, Nate and I had a chance to talk this week, and I went through it. He did so many things well. But, you know, you always got to give him a point or two of correction, right? Because it's where he can develop. And what I, you guys probably noticed this right away. But I thought he was lame in the number of steps he took. He just took like four this way and six this way. Nate was not a good steward of his steps when he preached like I am. In fact, I counted. He took 64 steps during that sermon. I'm good for 10 times that. I can do 650. So that's going to be his point of improvement. Um, Getting his steps in. Be a good steward of your preaching, Nate. Now, you got a rock when you came in. If you shouldn't have, they'll be up here on the table. And we'll talk about what those rocks are about after. But I want to clarify what they're not for. If you think this message is getting lame, you do not throw it at me. That's not, if you think it's getting along, that's not the purpose of the rock. We'll talk about that later. Xavier, did you get that? Don't throw the rock at me. You got that? Okay. Okay, so I, Hope and I get married in Alabama. We spend that weekend there. We drive out to Colorado. We have a week of a honeymoon up in Frisco near Breckenridge. And we come back. And that Monday, two weeks after we get married, I start Greek in seminary. And I've got to go the whole summer with this instructor. And then there's a qualifying exam at the end. You've got to pass the qualifying exam to go on. And it's, it's fairly boring, if I can be honest. You're turning these flashcards and you've got to learn this the grammar, the points of grammar. And, but it's a little stressful because I've got to pass this test at the end to keep, keep on going in my theological career. And Hope graciously, I don't know, we were three or four weeks into my Greek class. She said, hey, you know, if you want a break, I'd love to play spades. We're card players, and so we play some two-handed spades. And uh, man, folks, it is not going well for me early. It is not going well. I mean, she is ahead, and I have the gracious, loving husband. I say to her, you know, this is not because of your skill. It's because of the cards. <laughs> kind husband I was. And, and, and I will catch back up on this thing, but I didn't. It kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then in an act of great love and maturity, I threw my cards down and I stormed into the other room. And I'm one of those people, when I've got something to deal with, I, I, I want to deal with it right now. And I, I just think, yeah, I don't know what to do. So I do a 180 and I walk right back out and I say, I'm so sorry. I, I, I have nothing to stand on. Would you forgive me? And she did. But I had really blown it. I'm, what am I, four weeks, six weeks into marriage? I had really, really blown it. Here's my question. What do we do when we get in that point with God? Well, we know we've really blown it. I mean, we know we got nothing to stand on. We're going to look at somebody who got in that situation today. I think we're going to get an answer. So if you've got a Bible, if you open to Psalm 51, we're going to go all the way through this and wrestle with the question, what should we do? When we've blown it with God. What should we do when we've blown it with God? Now, we've entitled this series, Hope Again. And I think one of the things that will destroy hope is to think I've separated from God. I've done something where God can't forgive me. And the life of David is going to show us something different. If you weren't with us, we spent the last 15 years in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. No, we weren't that long. But we were 1 and 2 Samuel. And in that, we saw David's rise to power. But along the way, we saw him ignore one of God's commands, and that was, don't multiply wives. But David was the king, and he kept doing it, he kept doing it, he kept doing it, and finally it caught up with him. 
He saw this woman bathing her name with Bathsheba. Man, she looks good. Who is she? The guy tell her said, she's this Bathsheba, she's so-and-so's daughter and she's so-and-so's husband. So David, you're warned. This is a married woman. Didn't matter. He lay with her and she turned up pregnant. Trouble was her husband was away at war. So this looks bad. David calls him back and he's too honorable to sleep with his wife. He said, my men aren't doing that. I'm not going to be doing that. So David has him murdered. And he thinks he's pulled it off. And then the prophet... Nathan, sent by God, said, no, you didn't. There's going to be consequences. You will continue in God's grace, favor, but you will suffer the consequences. And we studied that. Well, this psalm is written at the point that David realizes he's sent and he's been confronted by Nathan. And here's what he says, verses 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Now, let me stop there. David's not wheeling and dealing with God. Hey, I've been pretty good. Hey, I had a bad day. Remember I did this. He is throwing himself completely on the loving kindness and the compassion of God. I got nothing here. I got nothing, but I'm appeal to your character. I'm going to appeal to your nature. Here's what he says. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Remember, this is poetry. And so David's going to use three terms to talk about God's action, and he's going, to be used about, he's going to use three terms to describe his sin, a balancer. First, he says to God, would you blot out? That is a rigorous erasing of something from a parchment or a paper. Then would you, would you wash? And that is beating clothes in the water until they're clean. And then would you cleanse me? That's in a ritual sense. Would you make me pure? Now, to balance that, David says, my transgressions, uh, that's a willful defiance of God. My iniquity, it's a bending or twisting intentionally for the purpose of distortion. And my sin, my failure from a willful choice, I did that. So David recognizes he is desperate for God's loving kindness and compassion. In verses 3 through 5, he describes a profound and inescapable awareness of his sin of his guilt before God. Here's what he says. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. We're a culture who wants to deny it. Let's, let's sweep it away. Let's, 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 let's reduce it. Let's, let's rationalize it. No, no, David said, I, I, I'm aware. So, David says, no, verse 4, he says, against you, you only I sin. Maybe if I have a problem with a verse in this uh, Psalm, it's this one, against you and you only I have sinned. Uh, wait, wait, you, you committed adultery and had a guy murdered. It seems like you sinned against them. But Bathsheba and Uriah were first gods, created by God on purpose for a purpose. And you took his creature, his creation, and defiled it in one case and murdered another. First, we, when we sin, we sin against God. I've done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you're, you speak and blameless when you judge. I work campus ministry for 15 years before I was a pastor. And I meet with students, and almost everybody agree, I've sinned. Now, you didn't have to convince. I didn't need a Bible to pull them out. What's your code of ethics? Have you broken it? Yeah. Where they disagreed is that they thought there was anything wrong. That's ah, not that big a deal. No, 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 you don't understand. We're dealing, dealing with a holy and perfect God. He is right to judge. David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And I don't think David's driving a theological point here as much as my life is just covered in sin. So that's, that's my issue. 
So what do you want from me, God? Verse 6, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, in the, in the inner recesses, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Truth, I, I want to put that on a couple levels. One is the truth of who God is and who he says he is in his word. That's why we're in the word every week. That's why we encourage you to be in the word. Truth is hidden there. Big picture, here's what's true about God. He's holy. He's blameless. He's perfect. The truth about humanity is we've rebelled. We've pushed back. We need to have that at the core of our understanding. We need that truth, God's truth. But then we need the, the truth that people can bring uh, through observation. You and I are great at being able to deceive ourselves. Great at pretending something we're not. We need to have people who we trust who will love us enough to say, this is the way it is. When I was in seminary, pastor of pastoral ministries, and again, he was speaking to us as pastors, he said, you would be good, you'd be wise to cultivate dissent within your body. That is to let people know it's okay to complain. Because they don't get a voice, they'll be out the door. Well, I would say that on a personal level. You and I would be wise to cultivate dissent. People we trust to speak truth to us. And we don't blow up at them. We hear it. David's saying, you want truth, I think on two levels. God's truth and what's true of us in our inner being. He says, in the hidden part then, you will make me know wisdom. Wisdom is skill at living life. And David's skill, what he understands is, I've got an issue, and I need to bring it before God sooner than later. So 1997, Hope and I went down to San Jose, Costa Rica for language school, and almost immediately I get a, a toothache. Well, that's telling me something's wrong, isn't it? But I don't, we're new, I don't know a dentist, I mean, we're learning the language, and, and so maybe I'll, you know, I'll put up with it, maybe I'll take a couple ibuprofen, but this thing's getting worse and worse and worse. And Holfein says, Andy, you need to start asking around. We need to find a dentist because this is not good. Sure enough, we do. We find a dentist. He's Costa Rican. He's married, married to an American. He's very reputable. He speaks English. So problem solved. I go see him, and he says, man, this is really deep. This has gotten away. And he's drilling down, and he's showing me. Look, look at that. Well, thanks. Look at that. It's, the infection's really deep. He said, you're, you're right on the edge of a, a, a root canal here. I didn't have it, but in fact, every time I go in, they'd look at that because it's a deep filling. What did I do? I, I, I waited too long to bring my issue before uh, an expert. Well, David has tried to put this off. When he's finally confronted, wisdom says, God, I'm going to bring it to you. And I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to pretend you're right to judge. And I'm going to throw myself on your loving kindness, on your mercy. That's all I got. So again, doing that, then David appeals for God's help. Purify me with hyssop. Now, hyssop was what was, a hyssop branch was used when um, Israel was, God was bringing Israel out of Egypt. Uh, the last plague was the, the death of the firstborn in every house. And God said, I will pass over your house if you slay a lamb, put a uh, pool of blood at the, in front of the door, and then hit the doorposts with blood and, and the lintel. And they used a hyssop branch to do that. So hyssop was an article of cleansing in the Jewish ritual system. And it continued in the sacrifice. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Remember snow when it first, now, I'm not saying after it's been around a while, but when it first falls, there's a purity of it. And, and again, this is poetry, right? God's given us a picture. He can make us that pure. Make me to hear joy and gladness 
Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. That's a picture of the restoration of God. He says this, hide your face from my sins. That's a picture for God's forgiving action. Blot out all my iniquities. We've seen that a second time. God's going to obliterate what has been done. That's a different approach than I had to sin for a long time. I grew up in a system, a religious system, where you went and you confessed your sins. And the religious official said, you go do this, you do this, you do this, and you do that. You, you, you balance it out with God. This is 180 degrees from that. You got nothing. I got nothing to offer God. We're coming and we're throwing ourselves on our mercy. That's hard to get over, though. We feel like we ought to do something. When I was a little boy, I, we lived in the Detroit area. I grew up loving the Detroit Tigers. We didn't have a TV. But we would visit an aunt in Buffalo, New York, who did. And on this time, um, we were over a weekend. And this back in the day when there's only one game televised a week, the NBC game of the week, and it was going to be the Detroit Tigers. And I was thrilled. So I you know, lobbied, can we be home Saturday so I can watch that game? Yes, son, we'll try and do it. We're going to this museum. This. But long story short, we got home late. <laughs> I saw the closing interview to the game. I was in tears. My dad felt awful. He had, kept his, he had told me one thing and not done it. And what he did is, is he made it up to me. He said, son, I'll take you out to another game at Tiger Stadium. I'll take you live to a game. Well, that's a deal. We'll make that trade, surely. Well, I think we bring that attitude to God. I did this, and I'll try and trade you that. Here's the thing. We got nothing. We got nothing to trade to God except to throw ourselves on his mercy. And that's what David's doing. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The heart in the Bible, the spirit is the place from which we live life. David's saying, not only do I need this action out here, I need this cleansing in here. See, the problem isn't so much the sinful action, it's the sinful heart. The action shows there's something wrong at a heart level. We're rebelling against God. We want what we want. David saw a woman. Buddy, you got a zillion wives. Why do you need one more? I want her, so I'm going to take her. Ah, oh, you're going to be exposed here. Well, I'll kill a guy to cover my... I mean, that is, that is a dark heart. It's worse than adultery, and it is the epitome of self-centeredness, and that's what sin is. I want what I want and forget you. I need a cleansing of the heart. He says, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and then sustain me with a willing spirit. David is absolutely, totally dependent on God. You can take me to a place of cleanliness, but otherwise I'm rotting. God, do what only you can do. Allow me to experience what only you can allow me to experience because on my own, I'm done. I'm done. Dependence. We're not big on that, are we? But when we come in sin, we better be dependent on God, realizing without Him, we're lost. 1993, I went over to Russia. I was going to spend the uh, school year in Siberia. My girlfriend, soon to be my fiance, and now my wife was a long-termer. She had been in Kazakhstan, Almaty, Kazakhstan, two years. She was back that summer. So we flew to Moscow together. We had about three or four days. 
in Moscow. And so we went out to see the sites. We went out to see the Kremlin and the Red Sea, all this stuff I've heard about. But if you've been in Russia, it's a Cyrillic alphabet, so I can't even read what's on the metro stations. I can't understand the language. It's like, woman, do not leave me. Because we're going to places I couldn't imagine going, but if you, if you bail on me, I'm lost. You'll have to talk to her later. She said maybe she should have left me. She's not sure. <laughs> but there was a dependence there. If you don't lead me, I am in real trouble. That's just a picture. God, if you don't show up on my sin, if you don't do what you can do, I can't do it. I can't even read the alphabet. I can't understand. I, I don't. I can't go. God, you have to work. David believes God will do it because here's what he says in verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. This is why we talk about being Christ in our community. People need to know there is a God who is gracious and forgiving. And sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that I may declare your praise. David's saying, would you do for me the ability to speak forth your goodness? Then David comes back in verses 16 and 17. says this, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. You want a sacrifice to God? You want a sacrifice to God? Here it is, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You know what God wants from you? You know what he wants from me on our sin? Brokenness. God, I got nothing. I got nothing. Hey, God, I'll do this. I'll... No, 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 no. God ain't looking for that kind of sacrifice. He's looking for the sacrifice of brokenness, of a contrite heart. God, I have nothing except your goodness, your mercy, your loving kindness. See, we, we ask this question, what should we do when we've blown it with God? We want to wheel, we want to deal. Here's what I'd say. We should throw ourselves on the grace and mercy of God. You got a sin issue in your life? Welcome. Welcome to humanity. Welcome to the club. Throw yourself on the grace and mercy of God. We've entitled this series, Hope Again. In 25 years of pastoral ministry and 15 before that in campus ministry, one of the biggest things I find is, Andy, I can't, you know, I, I just can't come to God because you don't, you don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't. But you don't know what I've done either. Uh, if you knew what I'd done, honestly, you might f be looking for another church. If we knew what you'd done, we might not have let you in the door. But God knows. And he said, my grace is deeper yet. Don't wheel and deal with God. Throw yourself on his grace and mercy. His sin's deeper. His grace is deeper than your deepest sin. Now, verses 18 and 19, most scholars think are an add-on. And there's not a problem with sacrifices per se. It's the attitude with which sacrifices are given. It says this, By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. There's not a problem with sacrifices per se. It's the hard attitude. God, I'm offering this sacrifice to show my brokenness. Okay, God's good with that. But he doesn't need our sacrifice. I'm offering this to wheel and deal with you. No, that's not going to work. 
As a graduate student, I was a teaching assistant for a Fortran class. There would be uh, 60 students that would meet with the prof on Monday and Wednesday. And then I'd have them Tuesday and Thursday for uh, two sections, 30 each. Uh, this is back of the day before the personal computer. So there was a big mainframe computer, and there was a computer room. You'd have to go, and there were terminals that were hooked up to it. And so they had three or four tests, and I was mostly helping them work problems. But they'd have three or four uh, programs that I have to do, and I, part of my job was to sit at the help desk. So about the second day of class, I would say, everybody put down your pen. Everybody, look at me. Look at me. And then I would do something, like I would stand on a chair, or I would get down and speak like I'm, I'm talking, standing on my head. And they'd look at like, God, what is this guy's deal? What's his deal? I say, look, I really want you to hear me on this. When you submit your program, that's your run file, it will send you back an executive file which will tell you the mistakes you've made. You got a syntax error here, you got a logic error, you got this is misspelled. Note those mistakes and go back to your run file because if you make the mistakes on your executive file and you save it, it will say that over your run file and the computer won't be able to read it. And you will have to type everything in from scratch. That's why I stood on my head. That's why I stand in the chair. Now, if that happens, you will have my deepest, deepest sympathies. But I will tell you, you will need to start from scratch. And you will get mad at me, and I will say, remember the day I stood on the chair? And da, 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 da. What's my point? I could see a problem. And 60 students, there would be three or four that would do it every semester. And I could shout, and I could scream, and I could stand in a chair, I could stand in my head. But once they made the mistake, there was nothing I could do about it. Do you understand? From Genesis to Revelation, this is screaming out, God is holy and you are not. You have a sin issue. You have been told God has made himself known in the creation and beyond, and you and I have rebelled against him. And you've been warned the judgment is eternity separated from God. Now, the difference between me as a TA and God is he did something about your problem and my problem. He offered Jesus. As a freshman in college, I got involved in a dorm Bible study, and I had come in this system which says you work your way, and, and I just had trouble believing this message. And finally, in February, after six months, this phrase got me, for by grace you have been saved through his faith, and here's the phrase, not as a result of works. I couldn't get past that. David's saying, not as a result of works, by the grace and mercy of God. And do you understand that the grace and mercy of God have been ultimately realized in Jesus? Look, we, we talk about verses 1 and 2, blotting out. Wash me, cleanse me. Hey, the reason that happens, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin in our place, because Jesus took your sin. Verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart. Only God can cleanse your heart. Uh, do not cast me away from your presence. You know, you know why we can pray that with confidence? Because Jesus was cast from God's presence. The first thing Jesus said on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God turned his back on Jesus because he became sin in our place. You never have to worry about that. I never have to worry about that because Jesus did, did. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That was David's prayer, because the, the Old Testament, Holy Spirit was given now and then, but, but not to most believers, but in Christ. 
you have the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will never, that Spirit will never be taken from you. Jesus is the one. He stood before his enemies. He was arguing with the religious leaders. In John 8, 44, he said, your father's the devil. And two verses later, in John 8, 46, he said, which one of you finds any sin among me? Would you say it among your friends? Would you say it to your spouse? I wouldn't. How much time you got, Andy? But with your enemies? That's what Jesus, because he had no sin. We can talk about you and me being white as snow. Hope again. That's what we're talking about, hope again. One of the things that breaks people's hope is they don't think they can be forgiven by God. Not to compare, but have you committed adultery and followed it up with murder? Okay, let's, let's go beyond that. Let's go to the New Testament. A guy named Saul, he was a religious leader. Uh, first martyr in the, the uh, New Testament was a guy named Stephen. He was stoned for preaching truth. But before you stone somebody, you had to get a religious leader to okay it, and, and that person was Saul. And he spent the next weeks and months serving papers on Christians, either imprisoning them or executing them. He's on the road to Damascus, and God says, ho, 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 you're persecuting me. Imprisoning and murdering Christians. You got that on your record? God took Saul and used him to promote, move the gospel forward more than any other person. Your sin is not beyond the grace of God. You and I have reason to hope again. So what's this stone all about? If you don't have one, there's some up here. I'd like you to think about this stone Representing that sin. You know the one that you're just haunted by? You know the one that you're ashamed of? Or maybe it's sins for you. Put this representation. I'm going to come up here. I'm going to drop it in this bucket. In a moment, the worship team's going to come up and lead us. And they're going to lead us in two songs. So you have time to process this and think about this. As you think about that sin or those sins, if God so works and you want to take God at his word like David did in Psalm 51, as an act of belief, would you come up and drop that rock in that bucket? If you don't have a stone and you want to do it, there are rocks available up here. Remember, we'll be doing two songs to think that through. Before we do that, I want to share a reading from Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Actually, it was Blake who brought this to me. And I think it's worth leading us into this time of reflection. Here's what the author writes. He says, we all tend to have some small pocket of our life where we have difficult believing the forgiveness of God reaches. You know what those pockets are in your life. We say we're totally forgiven, and we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven, pretty much anyway. But, you know, there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present lives, seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. To the uttermost, in Hebrews 7.25, means God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls, those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is mostly 
most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost. He saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. Catch this last line if you, can't, if you don't catch anything else. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. Would we use that as a time to reflect over these two songs? And if God should lead you to begin as an act of faith and obedience to drop that rock representative of those sins into this bucket.